This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today we are talking to Greg Little, continuing with Origins of the Gods. And we had a phenomenal time last week with Andrew Collins. And this time, Greg, who is an equally legendary figure in the world, and certainly in the world of Dreamland, He's been on this show many times, I think as early as 2005, uh, and uh, has, I guess, the most recent show we did with Greg and, and with Andrew was Denisovan Origins, about the mysteries of the Denisovan people. Greg is the author of more than 30 books. He's going to catch up with me if I'm not careful. Uh, including Dennis of an Origins with Andrew Collins. He has been around the block. You've probably seen him on the, Discover the National Geographic Channel, Discovery, the History Channel, MSNBC, and all kinds of places. And I am very excited today because we're going to go down a completely different path with Origins of the Gods than we did with Andrew, where we were talking about the mysterious remains and uh, the meaning of the ruins. We're, we're not taking a different tack. We're going to talk about the mind of the ancient world. What was it? What have we lost? Because we've lost something big, and it's getting worse, not better. Greg Little, welcome to Dreamland. I'm very glad you're back. Thanks, Whitley. It's great to see you again. I'm glad you're still around. Uh, I'm glad I'm still around too. Uh, and I know Andrew was uh, Andrew was probably pretty interesting with all that. And uh, his part was about shamanism and how it led into or ancient shamanism uh, and how it leads to everything weird, the entire paranormal, UFOs, whatever. But it's right. a pleasure to be here, and it is a rabbit hole. There's this is a rabbit hole, so I'm no, ready I, for it. I live in a rabbit hole. I live in many rabbit holes, and I think you probably do too. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we're here, because that's where you find the real world, down the rabbit hole. The, the world we live in and that has been made, in the, especially by the Western mind, was characterized by one of the visitors many years ago when she said, children of the northern people, you wander in eternal darkness. Hmm. That's what this is. But let's get out of eternal darkness and let's start <laughs> with some starlight. Let's go to Hovenweep. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what it was like there and also what they did? Yeah, well, you started out about the saying we're going to talk about the ancient mindset and what in the world was driving these people. And Hovenweep is where I chose to begin that search. I mean, what the heck were these people doing? Hovenweep is a site in southeastern Utah. It's about 75 miles or so south of Skinwalker Ranch, uh, which is pretty famous now. So Hovenweep is an ancestral Puebloan site, which is the preferred term for the Anazazi. Uh, so it was an Anazazi site, but again, like I say, they, they like to be called the ancestral Puebloans because they're still there. Uh, the descendants of them are still there. So 
it is a site that is kind of spread out. There's five main sites, but the main part of it is in this deep canyon. And it has a tower at the base of the canyon and numerous other stone structures in there. And I mean, it's kind of weird. So you got this canyon that goes down a couple hundred feet at the base of this canyon. You have this three and a half to four story stone tower that has these tiny little windows in it. And the windows they know are aligned to the sun and the moon and certain stars. So what was going on here was that it was a place for shaman and medicine people to go and perform various rituals. Being in the earth matters. Being It's literally like getting grounded. It's almost uh, an electrical thing because when they performed rituals, the preferred way to do it was to have your bare feet in the actual soil, touching the soil. So even the mound builders, we'll move from Hovenweep a minute. The mound builders, we know a whole lot about their rituals that they performed all across North America anyway. Well, I'm not talking about Central and South America, just North America. But what they did when they performed certain rituals is they removed the sod. They would take the sod off and expose bare soil. And they'd make these circular formations and they would sit around the edges of the circle, just like they did in the Southwest in what are called kivas. K-I-V-A-S, which is like a ceremonial structure in the ground. So they did that to connect with a higher spiritual force. Uh, it, there's some scientific evidence of the spiritual force. Uh, physics talks about the Schumann resonance, S-C-H-U-M-A-N, which is the ambient electromagnetic resonance that the Earth generates and the earth reflects. Uh, that's what we evolved in. That's what you can get attuned to when you go into a place like Hovenweep and get down in that canyon and get grounded. So that's kind of a beginning of it and we'll see where it goes. That's a, okay, when we get back, Free Dreamlanders are going to take a tiny break. Um, it actually won't be tiny. But in any case, we'll take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the relationship between body and earth and why it is that they felt it so necessary to connect with the planet and what that meant to them. We'll be right back. We're back with Greg Little. Uh, you can reach Greg. He doesn't really have a website, but the easiest way to find out about his doings, so he has told me, is to Google him, to Google Gregory L. Little. Not Greg Little, but Gregory L. Little. And you will, everything that is Greg Little related is going to come right mm -hmm. up in your Google, and you can take it from there. The book is Origins of the Gods. I regard it as essential reading for every anyone who is, don't worry about, we'll, we'll have that up. You don't need to worry about putting it up. Uh, uh, essential reading for anyone who is seriously interested in not just the past, but the journey of their own souls. And in this is something we have to recover. We've lost it. Uh, now, what happened? What was it like at Hoovenweep 
for you and Laura, I believe it's your wife, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, you've done a lot of work together. And what was it like for the two of you when you were there? How did it feel? Well, in the book, I said we were there 30 some years ago, and that's true. And 30 some years ago, we were in this frenetic search for mounds and sites. And so we went on this long trip and got went to places, took pictures and got out as fast as we could because we did it in the winter. So we only had so much time. So we were there and I really I found it interesting 30 some years ago. But this time when we got there, it was quiet and it's hard to describe total quiet. It's really difficult for people to understand that because nowhere in modern society anymore is it totally quiet. Uh, about the best you can do to experience that is get into a room somewhere, go have a hearing test, close that room up that they put you in that soundproof room and just listen. It was amazing how quiet it was. The other thing is this, there's no, uh, you won't you don't pick up cell phones. There is no ambient, no electromagnetic fields that are produced by humans there unless you're carrying a cell phone that is on. Uh, so I think that it's an easier way to attune to the Earth's forces. So what we have today, this is a, what I wrote in this book, uh, Origins of the Gods, is that we live in an electromagnetic cesspool. And this is so important. Medicine calls it electrosmog. That's the actual term in the medical literature. And it's linked to, at least right now, there are many mental health and medical professionals who believe this proliferation of electromagnetic devices everywhere and the cell towers everywhere, whether it's G5 or you know, 5G or 4G or 3G, whatever it is, that these cell towers and the proliferation of radio waves and TV waves and all that, it is pollution. And it is affecting us at a cellular level. And I believe that. Uh, it may be linked to an increase in ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, depression, don't know. But Hovenweep, it was, your mind is clear totally clear because it's quiet, very, very quiet. You can hear a crow if it's just w moving around in a tree. You can hear that. And it's amazing. It's something we just don't experience anymore. And that's a way to get back to nature. So it's it's not really a tourist site then? It is, but it is so far out of the way that very few people go there. It is a national park. Well, it's not a national park. It's a national historic site. There is a visitor center. You can walk around in it. There are five associated sites. Many of them are in, others are in canyons. The main site has this really deep canyon now. But yes, you can visit it, uh, but it's very difficult to get to. It's very remote. There's nothing around it. That's, that's the point. So if you're going to go, you got to go early to get out of there on time. Yeah. Uh, now, when, um, when you went there, you what? Let me ask you this: What are, what were the the windows pointing at? What exactly? Well, there's okay. So they already know that the windows are aligned to the uh, the solstices and the equinox. Uh, the stellar the the alignments to stars other than the sun. The sun's a star, but the alignments to those are 
debatable. They don't really know for sure. I've actually decided that I'm going to run some statistical computations on it, maybe for the next book. I'm not sure. But uh, the moon's movements also, the moon makes a, a cycle that it takes 18.61 years to complete. Uh, and I discussed that in the book, too. Uh, and it basically means that it takes the moon 18.61 years to return to the exact same place in the sky. And it's a way to predict eclipses. Uh, it's very good at predicting eclipses, but also the moon's standstills. So those are encoded into many sites. Well, you mentioned you go into the hexagon in the, in the mound site. Yeah, that, the octagon. Yeah, the octagon. octagon. I mean, yes, right. octagon. Yeah. I was going to say, wait a minute, a hexagon can't work for that. Well, but there the actually octagon. is a hexagon. There's a mound uh, in Alabama, a giant mound that was made into a hexagon, which is bizarre. It's funny you brought that up. Nobody's ever asked me that before. But there is a hexagon mound uh, in Alabama. Why, but yeah, I the, wonder why it was made as a hexagon. I have no idea on that one. I've, I've had clashes with the archaeological people that run it uh, because in my mound encyclopedia, I wrote what they put on their placard that is there. And they said, well, we don't believe that's true anymore. And I said, well, you got it on your placard. And they said, well, we just can't change those things. So that's uh, another <laughs> story. But yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't I know the significance of the octagon the eight-sided mound site in Newark, Ohio, that charted the 18.61 years in the moon's movements. And it's a gigantic formation. If you've never been there, and I'm talking to everybody listening, if you've never been to Newark, Ohio, and go to the mound builder sites there, there are two incredible places to go. You will, you've got to go. You will be overwhelmed. When we took Andrew Collins there, Andrew was actually living in Avebury at the time, and we snuck him in by a hospital so he wouldn't be able to see it till we actually walked up to the edge. And he stood there looking at this gigantic circle attached to an octagon. When I say it's a circle, it has walls forming a circle. The walls are about 16 feet high, walls of earth perfect circle. Then it connects to a 50-acre octagon. At each of the eight points in the octagon, there's a flat-top pyramid mound. But Andrew stood there and went, oh my God, you could get a dozen Stonehenges in this. What were they thinking here? Yeah. But what it is, it, it's a permanent structure that cannot easily be destroyed that predicts the eclipses perfectly, built 2,500 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah, Andrew's a remarkable person. I've walked Avebury with Andrew and Anne, and it was a, he's, he's got a lot of magic in him. Uh, there's no, yeah. no other way to describe it. So see, hearing his reaction is, it's a lovely, lovely thing. And, you know, Free Dreamlander, speaking of reactions, you're going to react very positively to what you're about to see. We're talking to Greg Little. You can find him on Google, Gregory L. Little. The book is Origins of the Gods by Greg and by Andrew Collins. Uh, we talked to Andrew last week, and now we're talking to Greg about the mind of the ancient world and how it was different. Greg, could you characterize, these were people who lived in and of nature. They were part of nature, not 
separate from it? What happened? How did we end up like we are? Do you have any ideas about that? Well, sure, I have ideas about it. Uh, their belief system is so fundamentally different from the European belief system. If you just think about when the first Europeans came in, Native Americans had no concept of ownership of land. They inhabited land. They had no concept that this forest belonged to them. They simply utilized the resources as they needed to. They didn't kill animals for fun or sport. They killed for food. Uh, very, very different. Europeans had the idea that resources are explored, exploited. You use them up. You use as much as you want. You don't worry about nature. Uh, Native Americans believed everything was spiritual. Everything has a spiritual entity, which actually goes to their cosmology, because in their co cosmology, it began with the singularity. And this singularity was a point of pure spiritual energy. And that's the actual term. I, I didn't I didn't make that term up singularity. I know physics uses it, but so did they. So they said this singularity of pure spiritual energy developed two opposing forces, almost like a yin yang symbol. And then it expanded, expanded instantly and created the physical universe. And so in their idea, we are supposed to harmonize with these two spiritual forces that I talked about. And of course, a singularity can't have two opposing forces. And that is what caused it to explode or create the Big Bang or whatever. So it started out a pure, pure point of spiritual energy. It developed these two in harmonizing but in opposition forces, one of which is creation. The other one is entropy or disorder. Things fall apart. That's what it means. These two forces were known as the upper world and the lower world. In the middle of them was the physical world. The physical universe in this conception is a three-dimensional space that is a double-sided mirror. And what the double-sided mirror does is it reflects the power of this lower world, which is entropy, which is one of the two forces constantly in play. And it reflects the upper world, which is the power of order or creation. So things are created whether it's human beings or animals or trees, whatever, things are created. And then immediately when they're created, they begin the process of entropy of falling apart. And when they fall apart, they go back to their most primordial point and then they are used again in creation. So that's the great cycle here. But they had this idea, this belief, this is what they were told, is that they were here to harmonize with the upper world force of creation and the lower world force of entropy to harmonize with it and appreciate it. And it's pretty unique to Native American populations. I'm speaking specifically about the North American populations and probably uh, Siberian shaman who are still there and practice the same basic belief system. So that's kind of the, the, the a summary of what their basic belief was. But we are here to harmonize. And if you're harmonizing with nature, you can't destroy it. You simply can't destroy it. So in, in, in that sense, if you take all this together, I've been asked like, well, why didn't they build stone houses? Why didn't they put up big stone buildings and so on? Uh, why didn't they develop the wheel? That's, always, that's one that I hear all the time. 
Well, because they knew they were going to move regularly in their harmonizing with nature. Again, this is unique to North American mound building and, and uh, Native American Indian cultures just here. They knew they were going to move regularly. And they also didn't believe much in possessions. If you know much about them, they shared possessions. They shared things even with, with the Europeans that came in. They readily traded uh, because they didn't have this concept of cheating other people or taking advantage of them, which, of course, hurt them in the long run. So that, that's a kind of a summary of it. Uh, they had a totally different belief system. Uh, I thought a lot about this thing about ownership of land. We don't really own land. I, I don't own anything on my house except if I don't pay my regular rent, which I call taxes. It's like I don't own it anymore. We don't really own anything, but they knew that to begin with. So they were ready to move. They utilized resources. When they were ready to move, they just picked up the little they had and moved, and they, they stayed there a while, utilized those resources, and then they would move back. That is how they survived. It was very harmonious with nature, something I don't think people can conceive of today. No, I, I think that we have lost a lot. And we're going to get into the, the uh, into archetypes and the soul and what we need to do to regain what we've lost, because we can't. We don't have to be this way. Uh, now, but before we go on, I want to take a, another kind of a journey. One of the most fascinating experiences I ever had in my interviewing life, which is now a pretty long one, was a 2003 interview that we did on Atlantis. You had written a book, I believe, about Edgar Cayce's predictions about Atlantis and analyzed their validity, basically, and it was just fascinating. And I'm leading up to this question. What happened to us? Because we have lost a whole way of being. You, you look around the world at these exquisite monuments that we've just been talking about that are so deeply related to the movements of, of nature and the movements of the sky. You look at the engineering skills, the fortress at Sacsayhuaman in uh, Peru, uh, the platform at Baalbek, the pyramids, mm -hmm. so many of these things that we can't even conceive of how to build today. And you know, forget all of the nonsense that's been written about them and how they are explained away. They're explaining the way is not explaining them. There's a difference. But what, what happened here? Greg, I think you're one mm -hmm. of the best people I can imagine to ask that question. Uh, Human nature and um, the, I, I hate to say it, uh, European ideas, uh, the belief system, but human nature, we're essentially uh, pleasure pain machines. We seek out pleasure, we avoid pain. Seeking out pleasure means, I mean, look at my background here. I don't know if everybody will be able to see it. Uh, this is my office, it's a very comfortable room. Uh, I'm away from the weather. I can open up some some windows here and I can see the weather. But uh, when I travel, 
Uh, I'm in a vehicle, a metal box, basically insulated. Uh, I wear shoes to insulate myself from the ground. I tend to not walk on grass very much to begin with, which I think most people avoid doing. Um, it, we're pleasure pain machines, and we have we have been allowed and even encouraged to follow pleasure and pain. And that is, uh, for example, it is pleasurable for kids to uh, watch and play video games and to watch TikTok, little 30-second, 10-second, 15-second vignettes that people put on, and it's causing short attention span. But what it does is it it puts a releases a bit of dopamine in the brain. It feels good, uh, just like getting likes on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Uh, it's a dopamine rush. I think it's human nature. I think we are built to have that. Uh, we're built to make things easier and easier and easier. And that's why I don't think we could build Saxuaman or any of those sites today, simply because it would be too much work. We do something much easier. We don't build many permanent structures anymore. Uh, they still do in England, but we don't do it here much. We we build a building for like a stadium for $500 million and 10 years later, uh, it's obsolete, so we have to tear it down and rebuild a new one. That's going on all the time. So I think it's really we're pleasure pain machines uh, and the direction that we've gone. I'm just looking around at all the electronic devices I have, all of the all the stuff. Uh, it's human nature, Whitley. That's that's really what it is. You have to want to harmonize with nature to stay in harmony with nature. You have to want to do it. And most people don't want that. Most people don't believe in a soul anymore. A lot of people don't believe in an afterlife. Skeptics will tell you you're stupid to believe in a soul or an afterlife, even though there's no evidence that what they're saying is is correct. Uh, all the evidence points to something existing, energy or whatever. So... I don't have an answer for you that's going to make you happy. Uh, it's just the way it is. No. Well, let's now talk about the two souls and the life journey, the life soul and the free soul. That's a wonderful part of Origins of the Gods. And just at this moment in this interview, it's the perfect time to talk about it. Can you tell us a oh. little bit about this wisdom of the life no. soul and the free soul? Love to. Uh, that's some of my favorite stuff. If you go back to when I talked about the uh, the singularity, the point of singularity, and when it basically exploded and created an upper world, which is just a force, and a lower world, which is an opposing force that they're kept in balance, and then the middle world's a physical world. Well, I said that humans were put here to harmonize with it in their belief system. So what does that mean? Where did the humans come from? So that's where these souls come in. So you have to start out with the idea that everything has this spiritual nature. Everything is in its essence spiritual, spiritual energy. The most primordial spiritual energy that exists is dirt, just physical dirt. Rock is solidified spiritual energy. Water is flowing spiritual energy. Fire is the release of spiritual energy. Crystals. Crystals are a condensed form of spiritual energy, which can be used. I know we've actually talked about that before on this show. So you, you have that concept with this spiritual energy. 
So the human soul is, is a form of spiritual energy. The human body is a form of spiritual energy. So the human body is what they called the life soul. And the life soul is made from all of the physical matter that the body's made of, dust, dirt, all, all those elements coming together and coalescing, making the body. They believed that it had a soul, and they called it the life soul. And they believed that death, for most people, the smart thing to do was to send the life soul, the body, back to its most primordial state. That is why they performed many, 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 well, they, they burned bodies. That's what they did. And then any bones that were left over, they grind them down to powder and then return them to the earth. So that was the main way, cremation, that they would do that. However, there was another soul. That was a soul that came from what they called the other world, not the happy hunting ground. That's a term that you'll occasionally hear. Uh, but the other world, the other world is where spiritual souls come from. They called that the free soul because it is free of a body. The free soul is free of a body. So at birth, the free soul came from this, this other world and went into the body. And the path that it took, it came through a portal or a hole in the sky, which was the northern pole star, as far north as you could get. And then it, so it entered there through that portal, and then it would get on the Milky Way, which they saw this band of stars going across the sky, which they call, which we call the Milky Way. They called it a path of souls. The soul would then take a journey to the south, and then when it got to the south, it would enter another portal and go under the earth and around. And when it came up the next night, it would come to earth and then inhabit a body. It reversed that process at death. Once the body was cremated, it reversed the process. So let's talk about the, the actual stars and what the portals are. So at death, after the body is cremated or buried or whatever they're going to do with it, that would release the free soul. They would hold a ceremony. We Andrew and I talked a lot about that in the book Path of Souls, uh, some in Origins of the Gods, but a lot of it was in that other book. But what it did, what the soul did, is it took a leap of faith, this free soul, and it there's a specific time of the year during the winter, basically, when Orion and Orion's belt, the whole constellation, would go across the sky every night. At the, basically, when darkness hit, you would see Orion on the eastern horizon, and then through the night, Orion would go across the sky, and it would set into the western horizon every morning right before sunrise. So the soul had to time a leap and it would leap into Orion right before Orion set into the western sky. And it actually went into Messier 42, which is Orion's nebula. It's right below on the, when it's setting in the west, uh, Orion's nebula is right below the three belt stars. So then it would travel under the world, the underworld. That was the trip in the underworld. The same thing Egyptians said. It would come up on the horizon and then the next day, and then it would leap onto the Milky Way, go to the north, and then it would go to the star Deneb, which is the main star of Cygnus, and that was the portal out. So that's kind of a summary of it. 
You know, that's so fascinating because when we get back, we're going to relate that to the cosmology of the of the Egyptians, of the Native American community, even of the white shaman in South Texas, which Greg may not know about, but it was discovered by a friend of mine, and I know a lot about it, so I'll talk about that too briefly. It's going to be an extraordinary experience, so stay with us, free dreamlanders. We'll be right back. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, the soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. That's William Wordsworth's great poem, Ode on, uh, <laughs> dear God, I'm, uh, you know, I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, it's, uh, I, I'm quoting, I'm, I'm getting too old. Oh, oh Ode on Intimations of Intermortality Recollected from Early Childhood. Hmm. All right. Now, on that note, let's now go to this extraordinary concept of the free soul and the life soul and the journey to the heaven to the heavens the native world and the ancient world believed that man's soul had a destiny can you tell us a little bit about that destiny well yeah from their standpoint they're very very cautious uh, about talking about this other world in fact that's that's that is how the idea of a happy hunting ground even emerged when the uh, back in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, when all these ethnographers, most of whom were in the beginning, they called the black robes because they were uh, Catholic friars and priests that came over. And some of them well, actually took an interest in Native American culture and they became ethnographers. They began collecting information and writing it down. And then some real ethnographers came in and collected the information. So when they did, and they talked about the the path of souls or death or whatever, what happens when you die. Uh, the shaman and the medicine people were deliberately deceptive. They didn't really put much out there. And uh, even when I talked to Lou White Eagle back in 1989, I talk about him in the book, too. He was a Cheyenne arrow priest. Uh, I remember vividly Lou sitting in our uh, den and I was talking to him about where do you go when you die? And and he put his hands up and he went, happy hunting ground. Uh, but that's that was the term that they used uh, to really shut down further conversation. You know, it's just like it is here, except you're always happy. And, you know, hunting was about food and getting your whatever you happen to need. Uh, but if you really dig, it comes out to it's called the other world. Uh, it is an ill-defined place that has all the souls. It reminds me of the Hebrew concept of the guff, which is a place where all the souls are stored. Uh, and But that's what it sounds like. But you do go back and you see all the people in your 
heredity, your hereditary line, all your all your predecessors. Uh, and basically, I think you'd probably see all of your uh, future relatives, too, because they would be there. The um, you know, this journey, <laughs> this ancient journey, the 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 sky boats that were found in uh, Egypt, Egypt, uh, the the and it, the white shaman and, you know, the the it was believed that this that at a certain time of the year when the Nile reflected the Milky Way, that souls would journey skyward in uh, in uh, in sky boats. And it in South Texas, so many thousands of miles from Egypt, along the banks of the Lower Pecos are nearby. Uh, the Lower Pecos broadens out, and it is uh, in a sort of canyon. And at a certain time of the year, not so much now as the sky is being killed, uh, uh, the the Milky Way would shine down into the Pecos in the same way it did on the Nile. And a friend of mine, Jimmy Zintgraff, had a ranch along that country. He's, he's passed on now. and It's now a tourist site. But uh, he called up one day and said, Ridley, I found an incredible thing. Uh, part of a cave had uh, broken in during, a, they had a torrential downpour. And I have found what I think is the most extraordinary piece of rock art in North America. And I went there and I immediately knew what it was. It's come to be called the white shaman. And if you look at the archeological uh, explanations for it in the museum in San Antonio and so forth, and at the tourist site, they're just hopeless. They're, they are written by people who are in the darkness that we started out talking about mm -hmm. on this show. They're living in that darkness. And, but the truth is the sh what it depicts is the shaman sending souls upward on the journey. Now, can you tell us a little bit about that process? Because all of this culture, and I'm not going to call it a civilization because that's not what it was. All of these ancient cultures were about the journey of the soul. And we can now we can also get into the wonderful material about Jung and archetypes and all of that cool stuff. But let's first talk a little bit about the journey of the soul. And I have a question here. Can it be taken during this life? Do anyone, like I suspected when I was reading about White Eagle, that, um, th that when I was reading about White Eagle, that he may have taken this journey more than once in his life. Is that possible? Well, yes. Uh, the whole idea of, of shamanism is that through rituals that they perform, uh, different types of rituals and mental, their in mental intentions and so on, that you can, if you are vibrating correctly, and that's what the rituals are all about. The rituals are all about getting your vibrational frequency in tune, actually, with the Schumann resonance. Another story there. Uh, but anyway, then the shaman, if they could do that, they would use 
a psychoid pull. I, I know that's uh, people, nobody listening to that so far uh, is going to understand it. We'll have to explain it. But that there's, uh, think of it this way, there's an imaginary pull that sticks through the earth and it points toward the north. It, so it's all the way through the earth and it points toward the north. So Shaman knew that this pull was there. And this pull vibrates. So they would get their their personal vibration in tune with the pull. And that allowed them to go up and down a spiritual um, hierarchy and connect with these other worlds, with the upper world powers and the lower world powers, or actually take the, the, their soul could be freed and take a trip to the other world. That is the belief system. There were some that went down to the lower world. That is true, too. Uh, you can call them black mag magicians or um, skinwalkers. That's what they were. Uh, and they usually were about revenge and hurting people. There weren't many of them. Uh, they were not allowed to live with the tribe if they were into that. Uh, but, yes, shaman could do that. The process, I don't know if this is going to be visible. This is something I had done some years ago. This is like how they would send the soul to Orion. They saw Orion as a hand. And so they would literally hold this ceremony within uh, earthworks. The people would line up. There would be a cremation. And then the shaman would perform some kind of a ceremony that would literally send the soul, allow it to go. I know a lot about the ceremony, the specific ceremony, and a lot of artifacts that have been found that have been enigmatic forever. Uh, we understand what their use was in a lot of these ceremonies now. And yes, some hallucinogenic drugs were used, but they also used whistles and they used drumming and dancing and anything that would be repetitive. Uh, Lou White Eagle, you mentioned Lou, the a Cheyenne Arrow Priest. Lou came and stayed with my wife and I for 30 days back in the late 1980s. Uh, we talked a lot. And yes, Lou did do many, many mental transitions to the sky world. Absolutely. Uh, and we talked a lot about that. You know, we're not going to discuss alchemy at all, but this is hidden in the alchemical literature too, which is so deeply hidden. It's almost impenetrable. But Anthony Poole in his, one of his books, I think it's called Hearing Secret or Secret Harmonies says this, in reference to the alchemist Thomas Vaughn, where, as again Vaughn writes, the liberated soul ascends, looking at the sunset toward the west wind and hearing secret harmonies. Now, these people <clears throat> still hear those secret harmonies. And, you know, Free Dreamlanders, speaking of secret harmonies, we have come to the end of our time together, and I so enjoy it as always having you with us, and I'm so glad you listened to Dreamland. I'll see you again next week when we're going to be with Paul Eno, going into a vision of the paranormal that is completely different from anything you have ever heard before. You will be listening to a show with a man who physically has had the experience of bringing 
people who have levitated out of a chair down back into the chair with his own hands. What a show it's going to be. We're talking to Greg Little, Origins of the Gods, written with his friend and co-author Andrew Collins. And all I can say about this, all of the wonderful, brilliant books you two have done together, I am so glad you got together. I really <laughs> am, because the two minds just work in a kind of secret harmony, do they not? Yeah. Free Dreamlanders, we'll see you again next week. We're going to talk now a little bit more about White Eagle. We'll get into the little people and White Eagle in a, little, in a bit. But first, tell us about his, his understanding and use of dirt. And it, it, I know the story of the house and the basement. Did you Tell us all about that. All right. So White, Lou White Eagle came to Memphis, I believe it was in, uh, it was the summer of 1989, and it was for a uh, a protest that Native Americans were putting on about a dig into a mound in downtown Memphis. Uh, Memphis, of course, is right on the Mississippi River, and there is a site there that had, once had seven mounds. Today it has two very large ones, and Archaeologists wanted to dig into one of them. Well, it's the site where they believe Hernando de Soto may have first seen the Mississippi River, which to me is no big deal. But anyway, Lou came here for that. He was the Cheyenne Arrow Priest. He was the grandson of the last high holy priest of the Cheyenne tribe. That guy's name was Edward Red Hat. Uh, Lou came here. He was at the mound. I was a uh, director for programs of the local county government at the time. Uh, and I had a county vehicle, and I remember driving down there. It wasn't any of my business, but I just I wanted to see what this was all about. Uh, and I wound up getting in the middle of it. I wound up becoming a middleman, literally, between the group of archaeologists and the Native Americans who were protesting. Uh, it la That lasted for exactly 30 days. And the very first day that I was down there, I met Lou White Eagle, very imposing guy, about 6'6", six, six, very imposing. And he... Uh, had his wife and, and three kids with him, and they had nowhere to stay. And Native Americans are not exactly wealthy, uh, which they were not. And so I invited him immediately, come stay with us. And he did. So during that 30 days, we spent a great deal of time talking about Native American beliefs about things, their cosmology, their idea of death and, and afterlife, things which I really didn't know anything about at that time. I mean, really nothing, really. Uh, and he would occasionally, we'd be sitting downstairs, uh, the house was half underground, and we'd be talking and he would, in his deep voice, it's almost a stereotype voice, he would say, uh, this is sacred knowledge. This, I, I have to purify myself and, and we, got, we must be purified. So he would go outside and he would get handfuls of dirt. Remember, I, uh, in the in the free portion of, of this interview, I mentioned that dirt is the most primordial spiritual energy that exists. Very primordial. But it's a purification. You purify yourself with dirt. And he would literally throw dirt on himself and throw dirt on me. 
And somehow in that in that belief, the dirt was purifying us and helping us have the right intentions and so on and motives to hear this information. But he did that routinely. Uh, I was uh, I'm sure I needed it. And I joked about that in the book. I needed purifying regularly. Uh, But anyway, he did tell me a great deal about the rituals. He introduced me to his the work done with his grandfather, Edward Red Hat, by an ethnographer. He introduced me to the most sacred of all their rituals, which is an incredible ritual called the Massam Ceremony. It lasts 56 days, and in that ceremony, they physically materialize entities, uh, spiritual entities. Uh, that is what the even the, ethnogra- the ethnography literature says that. Lou White Eagle said that. Uh, I know lots of other Native Americans that have said the same thing, that in the rituals, if you do them correctly in the right places, and the right time, because you have to do it at the right time, and you have to have the right intentions, you can manifest these entities physically. They're temporary. You're not bringing them into a permanent existence, but the truth is we don't bring anything into a permanent existence. Everything is temporary. But these spiritual entities, uh, they would, and I learned this from Lou, you know, they would build these circular structures. I know you've seen earthworks that are a perfect circle, no entrance. The walls might be anywhere from four to 16 feet high, but they make a perfect circle with a flat interior. Well, why would you build that? It looks almost like a fort, but it wasn't. What it was, it's a sacred enclosure where the shaman or medicine people could go inside and they could manifest spiritual entities. The walls are intended to keep those spiritual entities enclosed in that structure so you are not releasing them into the world. Their belief is is that a wall of earth, being the most primordial spiritual energy, stops the these whatever you're manifesting, the spiritual entities, from going further, that the wall stops them. If the if the earthworks had one opening, a lot of people have seen them. There's one opening usually oriented to something with the Milky Way uh, or a particular star. It means the spiritual entities are either entering through that opening or exiting through it, but they go in a straight line. That is that's really one of the most profound beliefs that they have. And virtually all Native American tribes have that belief. Uh, They had that belief also in the Central and South American tribes. So I don't know if that explained uh, all you wanted to hear. Lou and I had a lot of very weird experiences. The weirdest one I talked about in the book, um, that was with the little blue people and the little people. Um, if you yeah, want to go us. there. Yeah, we want to go there. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I have a lot of little blue people in my life. And, I know. And so I definitely was waiting to go there. And now here we are. Great. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, did you ever meet Betty Andreessen? Yes, I did meet Betty. Okay. I knew Betty Andreessen, too, in her later years uh, is when I first met her. Uh, and she was enthralled with the same thing. So, okay, here's the story of that. Lou, during the 30 days he was there, I was not just working for the local county government. I had a, a very small private practice with a psychiatrist and psychologist. And on a Sunday, I had to go out and fill out some paperwork. I asked Lou if he wanted to go along with me to the office. Uh, I told him that uh, there was a device in the office he might want to use. So he said, sure. So we went to the office. 
I took him into the room where this device is. It is it was called the Graham Potentializer. And that's spelled like Graham Cracker, G-R-A-H-A-M. Uh, it is no you can't get this device anymore. But what it was, it kind of looked like a massage bed, a flat massage bed big enough for a person to lay on. It uh, rotated like this up and down every seven seconds. Every seven seconds, it made this gentle motion. It was a very calming. I laid on it many times, and I never felt like it was going up. It's like it's just gone down all the time, but it's not. It's just gentle. The reason it's set at seven seconds is because that mimics the average duration of an ocean wave hitting the, hitting the shore every seven seconds. This device also created an electromagnetic bubble around it so that when you laid down it created the Schumann resonance which is the Earth's ambient resonance you could lay with your head toward the North Pole or toward the South Pole and you'd have different experiences that's something Edgar Casey actually talked about too when he when he gave psychic readings his head being to the North or South would have something to do with the kind of experience so I asked Lou if he wanted to use it sure so put him on it turned it on I walked out of the room. I went in to fill out insurance papers in another office. It was about 10, 15 minutes later. This imposing guy, about 6'6", probably weighed 230, 240, long black hair, archetypal shaman look with him, came in. He was shaken up, and I could tell that. And I looked at him, and I said, what's wrong? And he literally said, these were his exact words, little blue people. I went, what? And he said, little blue people. Little blue people are in the room. Little blue people. <laughs> they, they're very intimidating, boy. They may be little, but they're not small. Well, so his experience, the reason I brought up Betty Andreessen is because what happened to him was similar to what Betty said. And that is, Lou was laying there. He was laying there on it, and he suddenly thought somebody was looking at him. He felt the presence. And there were three big windows that looked to the outside in this office where this device was. Suddenly he had paralysis, but he could see the windows. And what he saw were these creatures. And these creatures were looking through the window. They were blue. And all of a sudden they started molding or melding through the windows and the walls. And suddenly he was surrounded by these people or these creatures, three and a half feet tall, they had almost almond-shaped eyes. You come into this in a minute because I talked to Lou about you after it. I, I'm uh, sure. He said that he was became terrified when they started poking his body, and that broke his spell or whatever it was of the paralysis. He said he stood up then and came straight into the room and talked to me. So naturally, I immediately got up and went into the room. I had to turn it off because it was still doing its little rotation. I didn't see anything there. And then I came in and sat down with him and he told me the whole story. He told me they are the little people of Native American lore. When we got home, I pulled out your book, Communion, which has a rather incredible photo on the very front of it. And I said, does it look like this? And he said, yes, to some extent. It looks very similar. The it, eyes were a little different, but it looked pretty much identical. Now, there are Native American books that say the little people in Native American lore, which they go way back, are identical 
to the three and a half foot tall entities doing UFO abductions. And they call the the Cherokee, for example, call them the Wogey, W-O-G-E-Y. But that's the story of that. Uh, there's a lot of stories about the little people, but it really shook him up. And he didn't want to use that device again because they're powerful spiritual entities. They're very powerful. The the dark blue stocky ones are the, the when you die, they are going to conduct your soul into the place that it belongs. And there is no escape from this. And it's very scary because people have to look back on their lives and think, where do I belong? And then the ego uh, slips away. And those secret harmonies I talked about a few minutes ago begin to sound. And in the ears of a good person, they are a beautiful sound indeed. But in the ears of someone who's had a less than, than good life, they sound like the terrible cawing of angry crows. Um, the these you know, there's a great old movie called Ghost. Mm. The yeah. same writer who wrote Ghost wrote Jacob's Ladder, and this man knows a lot of things. Ghost is uh, you can see the action of the little blue people when they come to Dark Souls. Uh, in the movie Ghost, and it's it's a lot of fun. And you can see the opposite in Jacob's Ladder when a young man desperate to live his life finally accepts his place in death. Uh, it, so those are two beautiful movies to watch if you're on this journey, and we are all on it whether we want to be or not. And the secular world, uh, the, the deniers of the soul and those who have gone soul-blind, are still on it. That doesn't matter at all. Okay, great. What a wonderful story. What a marvelous story. Now, let's go on from here, because you have, from this point, we begin to talk about archetypes and the power of archetypes and their ability to sometimes, as Carl Jung put it in, you mentioned in the book, uh, to manifest physically in the world. And then we're going to talk about tricksters. Yeah, okay. All right, so Carl Jung's conception of archetypes is very, very deep. Most people think an archetype is a symbol. Like, you know, you draw a circle and a mandala and you start putting colors in it. That is an archetype. Well, it's an archetypal symbol, that's for sure. But Jung made it very clear uh, that archetypes exist mentally. We have them uh, already imprinted in us at the moment of birth and it means there's a symbolic imprinting in our mind to where we automatically recognize certain symbols and the meaning so archetypes are in fact symbols but the word archetype means uh the original uh and all others are copies so here's the here's the idea and how it fits with all of this uh, the mandala is a circle, and Carl Jung wrote about archetypes, and he wrote about, actually, uh, you already mentioned it, um, he, wrote, he, <laughs> he wrote about how archetypes physically manifest in his UFO book. The last book Carl Jung wrote was called Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky, uh, and in it, 
He mentioned archetypes. He mentioned synchronicity, uh, which is meaningful coincidence. Uh, and he mentioned the psychoid quality of archetypes, which very, very few people ever picked up on. Uh, in fact, the first book I ever wrote was uh, called this. This is it. It's called The Archetype Experience. And it was a follow up to Carl Jung's book. Not, not a very popular book because most people don't understand Carl Jung and uh, they don't understand the concept of archetypes. Jung said archetypes have a psychoid quality. Earlier, I talked about a psychoid pull, a north pull that goes through the earth and that shaman would use this. Well, psychoid is it means it's a Jungian term and it means a process by which something that most people think is spiritual, like an archetype, or they think that it is simply a symbol, manifests into physical reality. Jung believed that archetypes actually existed. Most archetypes are in opposites. Man, woman, hero, villain, uh, angel, fallen angel. That's a good example. Uh, helper, somebody who hinders. The trickster fits into this. The trickster was an archetype. And in his, fly, in his UFO book, Flying Saucer book, Jung talked a lot about tricksters. In fact, that was where I first started reading about tricksters. It was Jung who introduced me to the concept. But he was very clear that there's this psychoid quality that they have. And he said, here's how, how he defined that. He said that they become, they manifest physically by altering their electromagnetic frequency from the ultraviolet end of the electromagnetic spectrum or the infrared end of the electromagnetic spectrum into the visible spectrum, which is something John Keel also said in John Keel's many books about UFOs. But that's what Jung said. He said archetypes physically manifest by altering their vibration and they're real. Most of us only yes. expe experience the symbolism of it. The, you know, the trickster is a very important figure in life. Uh, and the tricksters are in our lives always uh, it, it, they, because they are part of us. And we cannot get away from that. We're, you know, we, we are the caterpillars and the butterflies are fluttering around our head mm. all the time. That's why Annie manifests as a white moth, uh, because she is indicating her change of being. But it's important to understand the role of the trickster, which is very mysterious and not well understood, but it is easy to understand when you, when you realize the role of the trickster is to introduce us to ourselves, to enable, to trip us up in such a way that we make a moment, we have a moment of self-realization. So, uh, that, that, that is, that's a fascinating way of putting it. I've never heard anybody say that a way to meet ourselves, but that is exactly what it is, Whitley. Yeah, I know um, it is. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. there's not many people who uh, have ever sat down with the tricksters and had a good laugh, <laughs> 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 which I have. Yeah. So, um, um, well, that, that, that the introducing to yourself. I usually talk when I talk about tricksters. I most people think they're they're bad. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're simply playing off whatever we are 
That's how I describe it. But introducing to ourselves, that is exactly what they do. But they're playing off of our own stupidity. They play off of our own needs, our own wants, our desires, our selfishness, whatever it is. And psychologists have written about tricksters. Jung wrote a great deal about it. And the traditional explanation of what a trickster means, it was a way for these ancient societies to explain away their own stupidity. You know, I made a stupid decision and killed somebody or I made a stupid decision and an animal got away or whatever. You know, we didn't plan on time. A trickster did it. Trickster made me do it. And they made lots of children's stories up. Tricksters appear as animals in those stories like the coyote or whatever. And the little people are a form of trickster. But the truth is, even in that ancient lore, in all of it, when they discuss a trickster, they they say the same thing over and over. And that is if you can get by the initial contact with them, which has to do with what's going on inside of you. They're reading you. They know what is going on with you, and they are adjusting their appearance and adjusting their behavior to what's happening within the percipient, the person experiencing them. If you can get by that, then you can get to real spiritual truth. That's the whole idea. That's why Carl Jung wrote that the whole idea of shamanism, it's all about navigating the trickster. That is a direct quote from Carl Jung. It's about navigating the trickster, because if you can't do that, you'll always be tricked. You'll always go down the wrong path. You have to find yourself. Yes, exactly. Yeah, if you once you once you are are well standing in the dirt and holy ground of the self, what in Christian some parts of Christian mysticism or esotericism is called holy the firm. The trickster becomes your your uh, angel. Uh, you you cease to be this. The trickster ceases to be uh, an impediment and becomes your best servant and closest friend. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about this vision of the world and the deeper the deeper meaning of things like uh, the uh, uh, Cygnus. You discuss Cygnus some, and, and Andrew doesn't touch on it very much in his part of the book, but he starts out, and I sort of tried to ask him this, but he deferred the question, and I think he probably deferred it to you, in talking about the fact that there was a cave uh, found at, at, I guess it's called Kassem, Kesem cave, yeah, Kesem yeah, cave, yeah, and it was full of the bones of the of the wings of swans. Yes, and I thought to myself immediately, well, this is related to all of the swan uh, m mythology of later times. Uh, oh God, what is that quote from Tithonus from Yeats? Uh, Keats. That one I don't know. Oh uh, well, I do know. Uh, it's. Uh, Man comes and tills the soil and lies beneath. After many a summer dies the swan. Wow. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about swan mythology and who the swan is and where we are going because we will all eventually be embraced by the wings of the swan, uh, will we not? 
Well, I'm sure Andrew said a swan is a psychopomp. Uh, he did. He says that. Yeah. Uh, OK. A psychopomp is a it is the uh, mechanism by which our soul is carried to the other world. That's what it that's basically what it represents. Swans, just like raptor birds, like eagles, are representatives, animal representatives of the Native American upper world. So they represent creation and it's an orderly world. The, the, the sun goes by every day at a regular time. It's very predictable. Watch it through a year and you'll see all of the places where it rises and sets. So the sun is part of the upper world. Swans are giant birds that do fly, but they also land on water. And water is like the surface of the underworld or entropy. So swans are very special in this regard. The Navajo, for example, believe that swans guarded the four corners of the entire world. There are four big corners of it, and there's a giant spiritual swan there. Uh, but swans, again, they're psychopomps. So a lot of the Native American in here and we know now in that European site, well, it's Middle Eastern. Uh, Kesem Cave is near Tel Aviv uh, in Israel. It's about I think it's about 40 miles east of Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, the swan wing bones that were found there is the earliest shamanistic devices that have ever been recovered in the world. That's why Kesem Cave is so important. It goes back to 400,000 years ago, and it's evidence that they were doing shamanism 400,000 years ago. They probably were not modern humans like us, Homo sapiens sapiens. We're not really sure what they were. Maybe they were Denisovans, probably not Neanderthals, but we don't know what they were. Uh, but they were doing the same thing that Native Americans here and in Siberia are doing because they use the wings of swan or swans or they use eagle feathers for the same purpose. They are the most spiritual representatives of the upper world. So they are used for souls to return on that that trip back uh, of the free soul going from Earth to Cygnus. I'm sorry, Earth to Orion, then going up the Milky Way and going out of Cygnus. Now, the one key here, uh, which we've addressed in earlier books and a bit in this one, is that these ideas we know developed roughly at least 15, 17,000 years ago. So if you go back 17,000 years to say 17,000 BC, which is 19,000 years ago. And if you were to look at the sky here in North America and you look due north, the North Pole Star was Deneb of Cygnus because of precession of the equinoxes. So in the in the precession, the sky alters slightly as the Earth does a wobble. It's not the sky that's altering. It's the way we view it. But Deneb, the prime star of the Cygnus constellation, was the North Pole Star. If you then turned around and you look due south, right on the southern horizon, due south, you would see the three belt stars of Orion due south. So these two constellations created this incredible north to south view where they're both right on the horizon. And that is where we believe the idea of the path of souls, at least uh, the connection of Orion on one hand and Cygnus on the other, 
where they got connected to it. Over the centuries, because of the procession of the equinoxes, Orion moved toward the west and Cygnus moved toward the east. Uh, but eventually they rotate back around again every uh, it's every 26,000 years or so they make a complete circle and rotate back so we know for example about 45,000 years ago the same setup was so it's possible that that this same belief system about the soul going to Orion first and then to Cygnus could have been 40 some thousand years ago or you could add 26,000 years to that, and you'd have the same setup, and it could go back a long, long way. Again, Kesem Cave 400,000 years ago. That's astonishing. That's absolutely astonishing. That's why Andrew spent so much time at that site. We have forgotten a lot of things, and um, most all, of greatest importance is we have forgotten ourselves. And the reason I do shows like this is to help us find ourselves, recover ourselves, and recover who we are. And Origins of the Gods, folks, will give you a window into this. And it also, it isn't written down in the book, but there are many pilgrimages that you could take. Actually, you could take some with Andrew. Uh, he, he takes people to... I believe Gobekli Tepe and in different places. And if you go to andrewcollins.com, you can, you can go on some of these journeys with a man who is deeply engaged with this on a profound spiritual level. Uh, do you take any, do, do any of that sort of journeying? I did. We did a lot of Indian man tours. Uh, we did them through the Casey organization. Uh, we took 105 people on uh, one tour and went through Ohio, went to the uh, the Circle and Octagon site and a lot of others. And it just reached the point to where uh, it's more useful for me to use my time in writing and in my profession. I'm still active uh, in my profession. I'm a criminal psychologist. So yeah, I'm that's still, right. I had forgotten. I should. Yeah, I should have mentioned I'm, that early on. I'm so sorry I forgot. All right, that. I don't. Tell I don't. Us a little I don't bit about that. your adventures in criminal psychology. Oh uh, well, uh, I've been in that since 1975. Uh, it has allowed me to travel all around the world, uh, and I have been given access to many, many people, governments. Uh, I had a, a prison warden drive me to a dinosaur site on this massive prison complex in Oklahoma. That's an example. Government officials in Washington state took me to the Yakima Indian Reservation out uh, to Toppenish Ridge where we had several, we stayed several nights looking for UFOs, taking night photographs, which you can't do anymore. Uh, so the government, the, the official state government officials took me out there so I could do it. Puerto Rico, the adjutant uh, why, general. Why can't you do it anymore? Uh, the tribe has uh, shut it down. They don't want anybody doing this anymore. The Yakima, the, the Yakima Reservation has shut down research on the UFO sightings that went on there basically from the 1960s. Uh, up until roughly Mount St. Helens exploded. And then uh, after the explosion, the number of sightings went down. But they simply passed the resolution. They didn't want any more people there looking for UFOs or doing research there. But I wound up talking to a lot of people. I mean, they saw where this ridge is, UFOs would roll down the side. 
Uh, people saw Bigfoot. They saw little people. They had interactions with all kinds of entities. I mean, it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Uh, but anyway, so in Puerto Rico, they took me in a limo, drove me around. There are Indian mound sites all over Puerto Rico. Sweden. Sweden has thousands of mounds that are identical to Native American Indian mounds. So we went there. I, I did work in Sweden, but I've been to all states, uh, did work in them, still do some there. Uh, I mainly now do work with criminal treatment. I still write lots of criminal treatment books. I have about 45 of those in print, in addition to the other 30 books that I talk about in, in this stuff, 30 different books. So you are ahead of me already. Well, if you count those words, some of those workbooks are gigantic. They're used in the VA. Uh, we have we have books for post-traumatic stress disorder, for TBI, traumatic brain injury. Uh, all of the VA hospitals and treatment centers use them. Uh, we have uh, giant workbooks for specialized veterans courts, and we have my treatment materials are used in every Native American reservation in the United States. Uh, we have real connections with all of them, tribal courts, family tribal courts, family drug courts. Uh, they have specialized opiate courts. Uh, they're really trying, and we have been involved in that for decades. Uh, so I'm still doing that. Uh, that enabled me to do everything I've done. Has uh, any you tribe know, ever given you a name? No. Your name should <laughs> no. be two hats. Uh, One hat maybe. is white, and the other hat, people can only see if they know how to look for it. Well, that's interesting. I, I like that, two hats. So your name is two hats now. Um, <laughs> all right. Now, let's go on, though, because before we, we're coming toward the end of the show, yeah. and we have about 15 minutes left, and I want to talk about... The, you just sort of touched on this with the Yakima people, the legends of visitors from the stars, and because they're not just legends, it's an ongoing process. I want to ask you first, though, did they forbid any more of the whites coming to make photographs and so forth because of uh, an awareness of how that wasn't wanted, or did they... Uh, uh, do it because they didn't want the tribe to become have a reputation as being a UFO cult. That's I, I think it's uh, they were tired of being made fun of by some by the skeptics. Skeptics would make fun of them. I mean the evidence at Yakima is overwhelming. Something yeah, I I mean, it's overwhelming. It was scientifically studied, uh, but they simply got tired of the intrusions, the people coming. And a lot of people don't know how to act on a Native American Indian reservation. You just can't go and take photos. You are in another country, technically. When you're on a Native American reservation, they have different laws. You are in a different country. And, you know, I know here they say, oh, I'm in public. I can film anything I want. Well, you can do that in the streets and cities. That's no, true. because you're, you're in a very big soul when you're on a Native American reservation. You're not in... The earth is we, it, it, we, you're not in the dead world. You're yes. in a, the living world still. This is And you're supposed I, to respect. It's a lack of respect that we have for this culture. We don't say we, I mean, my culture doesn't respect this. We have no. always disrespected them. And that's terrible. Yeah, we don't respect it. And, uh, well, you know, I do respect it. And I've had the extraordinary 
privilege of being at a very private family ceremony on a reservation. And, uh, and on that same reservation, as I did write about, uh, I began a long, what has become a long journey of relationship with another level of reality or another world. It's not exactly the happy hunting ground either. It is another world. But it is, it is on the Lakota Sioux Reservation, Pine Ridge Reservation. It intersects with this world. And, uh, the, this, the, this level of thinking and being is still alive among them. And the only way they can protect it is by being very careful with the tourists who come from, uh, the Shadowlands and don't know what they're doing. Okay. Now, there are dozens of Native American legends of visitors from the stars, trips back and forth to the sky world. And in chapter nine of the book, you go into that very, in very interesting ways. Could you talk a little bit about the, especially the trips back and forth? Yeah. Okay. So... I spent a great deal of time reading all this ethnographical literature. That's how ethnography is hard to say too many times. So I spent a lot of time reading that literature. There's a lot of it. Uh, and I know you know who Brad Steiger was. He died a few years ago. Uh, and Brad Steiger spent decades studying that, too. And, and back when he was doing the work in the 60s, that's when he was visiting tribes and trying to accumulate their legends of star people. Uh, he said that they really didn't like to talk about it, uh, that it was very difficult to pull that information out. That's no longer true. Tribes will talk about it today. Uh, I don't want to get into why, but many tribes will talk about it. A lot of shaman will talk about it. But it wasn't real common until recently that they would discuss it. And recently, is, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever. Uh, so in that ethnography literature, there are lots of tales and they're all pretty similar. And what they say is is this. They say that uh, it's usually someone who is experiencing some sort of crisis. Often it is a chief or a shaman or an important warrior and someone in their family is murdered or killed. Uh, often it's like a chief's wife or a chief's son. Uh, and then they decide they've had enough. They go to a mountaintop. There's one really incredible story where a chief, had, his wife died. He went to a mountaintop. He built a stone circle, which there are still a lot of these uh, prayer circles still in existence. Alabama, there's thousands of them in the mountains around Anniston, Alabama. Uh, another story. But anyway, uh, he went and he built a stone circle. He got in it and you seal it off. You still seal it off so entities can't come in and out. And he was going to sit there till death. Uh, and that is something that they did do. So while he was there, what happened was this. It was at night and he began seeing a little point of light in the sky. And this point of light, of course, was getting bigger and bigger because it was getting close to him or closer. And it came down to the ground. It was a giant kind of ball of light and there was a being in it. Uh, he had the term was uh, wasn't translucent, but it's what it means. Diaphor, dia, diaphorus. Yeah, dia, diaphorus, I think, was the old the archaic term that was used, but it means translucent. The being walked out and told the chief that 
he needed to return to his tribe because they really needed him there. They needed his presence. So he did. That is one of the stories. There are a lot of stories identical to that where somebody is hunting. There's one one trip of a hunter, one story about a hunter where he killed a bear and he was preparing the bear. And he suddenly became aware that something had 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 come up behind him. He turned around. There was a huge ball of light. There were three entities there. The entities told him that they were spiritual and they were tasked with maintaining harmony with the animal world. And suddenly they took him into this ball of light and they took him up into the sky and he looked down and he traveled around a bit. He didn't go to other worlds or anything. He just traveled around a bit and then came back down to the same spot and they let him out. Uh, they told him he needed to be he needed to harmonize with the animal world better. And that's one reason why they when they kill an animal, they pray to it. They thank it. They thank it for giving its soul for to for their sustenance. But there are loads of stories like this. There's there's dozens and dozens of these stories. There are very, very few stories in this old literature where they would talk about actual beings coming down like us landing. And then like a chief or a shaman or a single individual that's out and sees them gets into the craft and then goes up. In fact, I, I know there's a lot of stories that you will hear and you can read in modern literature, but I haven't found any of that in the old literature. And I'm basically uh, in this. I try to be as honest as I can be. I really search. If anybody knows of something like that, send it to me. I'd love to see those stories if they can find them. Uh, but they did believe that the souls came from the stars. Lots of stories about that. Lots of stories about souls coming down and souls returning. But they're not in a the craft. The soul is an is a it's almost like a ball of energy. Uh, and this ball of energy, it has a form. It's not a ball, really. I'm just calling them that now. But it has a form, a humanistic kind of humanoid type form that that literally flies back and forth into this sky world to the portal out of this physical universe into that other place. So that's kind of a summary of it. Lots of stories like that. Uh, today you'll hear many, many more, uh, but you don't get much. They don't get really specific. Uh, you might have noticed that yourself. There's, they're not really specific with it. There are lots of paintings and rock carvings, petroglyphs that depict these entities that are seen. Uh, and the entities sometimes are look like the little people or they look like the grays. They have the weird almond shaped eyes. Uh, and some of them have almost like the helmets over the heads. I've seen many of them see a lot of those in Navajo land. Uh, and so they believed in it. Uh, there's just not a lot in the old literature about it. There's lots of it, lots of stuff in the literature about uh, these balls of light that came down from the sky and entities walked out of. Lots of that, though. That's my summary on it. Well, it's a wonderful place to draw to a close. And folks, you can you can go out with Andrew Collins um, in this country. William Henry still takes tours in this country, and there are others. Uh, the uh, I think William also goes to Egypt as well. But the best way to do this is to do it on your own. Go to these sites, go to them, and go ahead and take off your shoes. 
and let yourself be there. They're still alive. They're still alive. They may look like they're in ruins, but uh, I was once shown a university in another place, and it was just an absolute wreck. It looked like it was in ruins. And I, when I said to the people who were showing it to me, it looks like it's in ruins, they said, oh, it's a million years old and the scholars aren't any good at upkeep. <laughs> so that so don't think that these sites, because they're old and they seem abandoned, aren't alive. You can bring your own soul and it will be fed. Greg Little, thank you so much for being with us on Dreamland. The book is Origins of the Gods. And if ever we have talked about a sacred book on this show, and we've talked about many, this one is a very sacred book by two men on a very special journey, Andrew Collins and Greg Little. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Whitley. It's always a pleasure, man. And good luck to you, too, and all that you do. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.